God's grace is sufficient for you, for his power is made perfect in weakness. My brothers and my sisters in Christ. His name is Brian Johnson, but everyone knows him as the Liver King. He is called the Liver King because his diet consists only of animal, raw animal livers and other organs. Why does he do this? Why does he eat raw animal parts? Why does he sleep on a flat wooden box for a bed? Why does he go on what he calls simulated hunts every week? It's because his motto and his mantra is he's trying to live like life just like our ancestors did. Now, when he says ancestors, clearly he's thinking of some caveman-type existence, some primitive form of society. He wants to get back to basics. And why is he so popular, though? He has over 1.1 million followers on Instagram. He's booming over social media. Lots of people are talking about the liver king. What's catching people? What's appealing to people about this guy sitting in his kitchen eating raw livers? Because something about getting back to basics appeals to all of us, doesn't it? Something about removing ourselves from technology, from comforts, and proving again to ourselves and to the rest of the world that we can be okay without all these creature comforts, that sort of appeals to us. Demonstrating, showing that we can be self-sufficient. Now that's kind of cool, isn't it? You don't have to eat raw livers to prove that, though. You can prove that in all sorts of different ways. But as this guy is making uh, making a living and making a name for himself, living in this primitive way, you have to notice that some of those pictures of him eating raw animal livers are, are, are taken in a very nice kitchen. And he gives you a tour of his house, and it's a million-dollar home sitting on a beautiful acre of, of land that is very well kept. He has a super long driveway that leads up to his garage, which is not where he keeps his supercharged truck, but that's where his home gym is with state-of-the-art equipment, you know, just like our ancestors had. <laughs> but can you blame him? I mean, these inventions are pretty nice. AC is pretty handy in a pinch, isn't it? Can you blame him for relying on a couple, a couple of these creature comforts? I mean, who of us wants to be truly, truly independent, truly self-sufficient? In fact, thinking that we are truly independent, truly self-sufficient, is not a healthy way to live, is it? But the Apostle Paul, in the first century, was an amazing man. He definitely demonstrated some of these back-to-basics survival skills as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was making his way from duty station to duty station, the churches around the Mediterranean Sea in his day, and he made do on very, very little, living far below the poverty line and still getting things done. In fact, when Paul showed up to to Corinth, where the church to whom he wrote this letter was, Paul took on a side hustle. Paul was making and selling tents to provide for himself a living wage so that when he showed up to church at Corinth, they didn't have to worry about their budget. 
They didn't have to worry about providing his wage for him. He didn't want to be a burden to anyone. Amazing, right? The initiative that Paul took, the self-sufficiency that he demonstrated, the independence that he had. This is a long time before America was a thing, but don't you see Paul exhibiting these American qualities of independence and do-it-yourself and be-your-own-boss kind of stuff? He, we would admire him, wouldn't we? But that doesn't mean that Paul was well appreciated. As soon as he, it seems like the second that he leaves the church in Corinth, pe bad people stood up and started uh, spreading bad rumors about him, saying bad things about Paul, that his preaching wasn't that great, that his leadership style was weak, and that the only reason that he showed up to Corinth in the first place was for personal glory, personal fame, that he didn't actually care about the people he was trying to help. And when Paul catches wind of this, that people are spreading these rumors about him, how do you think he feels? How would you feel? What would you say? After all I've done for you, this is how you repay me? After how hard I worked, basically having two full-time jobs so that I wasn't a burden to anyone, this is how you talk about me? This is how you treat me? Are you serious, Corinthians? In the game of poker, you're not supposed to react, are you? As soon as those cards come out, if they are really good for you or if they're really bad for you, you're supposed to keep a stoic, stone-cold face, not show people, because then they might be able to guess what's in your hand, and then they can outbet you or whatever. A phrase like, after all I've done for you, that shows our hand, doesn't it? That shows what's going on in here. Every time we say, after all I've done for you, this is how you treat me, we are showing what's hurting. What's hurting is our pride. What's hurting is our self-image. Our self-worth is under attack. And the claws come out. After all I've done for you, this is how you repay me. We want to prove to the person who's putting us down that we deserve better than this, however we're being treated. After all I've done for you, look at my track record of how much I have achieved and accomplished you're really going to say this to me or treat me this way? But brothers and sisters in Christ, what if your pride is not worth protecting? What if it's a waste of your time to let the claws come out when someone insults your self-image? What if there's something better to spend your time on, better to worry about? Imagine a millionaire, multi-millionaire, sitting on a stack of cash arranged like a throne. And he's sitting there very pleased with himself, saying, look at all that I've achieved. Look at the money that I've made. Look at all my success. He's thinking about his life, and he's taking credit, patting himself on the back. But he's forgetting that he was born into an already pretty wealthy family. That his first job, that high-paying job, he got the interview because the interviewer owed his dad a favor. And when he got the job, clients were pouring into his office who didn't have to take his services, didn't have to hire him, but did. 
for him to pat himself on the back and pretend that it was all his doing, that he got to where he's at, is just incorrect. A lot of times he was just in the right place at the right time. Brothers and sisters, for us to take pride, for us to become conceited in our own self-worth, in our own independence, in our own self-sufficiency is not only dangerous to our emotional well-being, it's wrong, and it's dangerous to our faith. How did you get to where you are today? It wasn't because of your prowess. It wasn't because of your abilities. It wasn't because you made all the right choices. It's because of God. And to put all the focus on yourself, that's what conceit is. It's removing God from the throne of your heart and sitting on it yourself. Look at what I've done for me. Look at how great I am. And there's no room for God or a relationship with him. Conceit is the most dangerous thing to saving faith. So how does Paul respond to these people, his accusers, the people spreading these bad rumors about him? Well, for a couple seconds, he has to go back to his qualifications. He does say, you know what? I have done quite a bit for you Corinthians. I have worked that tent ministry. I haven't been a burden to you. I have only been focused on sharing the gospel with you. But then it isn't long before Paul says, but even to talk like that is foolish because that's not the point. Paul, in our lesson for today, is not about defending himself or his pride or showing the Corinthians that he deserves better treatment than he's getting. No, Paul wants to go back to the heart of the matter. And let's go with him. He says, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Brothers and sisters, if Paul's point is to defend himself, to defend his pride, to put his pride on the line, why would he mention this? Why would he talk about thorns in the flesh, temptation, demonic activity, suffering? Why would he bring that up? That only highlights his weakness. But what if it's about more than just putting forward the best version of yourself? What if our emotional, our spiritual well-being came from more than just acting like we're invincible? What if it's okay to admit that you're not? What if it's okay to admit you have weaknesses? What if it's okay to talk openly about your thorns in the flesh? Because it's not about us, is it? You are not enough. You're not. You are not strong enough. You are not enduring enough. You are not put together enough to handle all that life has to throw at you. And if you've been paying attention, you know that by now already, don't you? But the important thing, most important thing you will ever hear is that while you are not enough, God's grace is. Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, we were not enough. Not holy enough, not righteous enough, not perfect enough to be able to demand from God his love or any kind of blessing. We just didn't cut it. We couldn't handle it in our sin. But God, because of who he is, sent Jesus for you. And Jesus was enough. He was holy enough. He was perfect enough. He was righteous enough for you. And he was sacrificed for you. And his sacrifice was enough. Enough to forgive every one of your sins. Enough to pay the penalty on the cross for everything wrong you've ever done. All your pride and conceit, it is crucified on the cross. There you see your true self-image. Because you see what you deserve, but at the same time you see what the God of love and grace was willing to do for you. Your worth does not come from your achievements, from your smart choices, or anything else. Your worth comes from God's grace given to you through Jesus Christ. Your worth comes from your baptism, where God called you his dear child. Your worth comes from communion, where God strengthens your connection to him and that relationship that you don't deserve but is fully provided for you. Your worth comes from God's grace. Nothing else. So self-sufficiency might be a lie, but you have grace sufficiency. You know that even though we are weak, even though we can't handle everything, God can. And God is on your side. God's love is for you. God's grace is for you. You will not make it through your own power. You will make it through God's power. But notice that Paul is not going to play any games. He is not saying that when he suffers, he has nothing but a smile on his face. He's not saying that when life gets hard, he's nothing but jokes and laughter. No, suffering is suffering. When someone dies and you mourn, it's okay to mourn. It's okay to cry. When the stresses of life are, are mounting upon you and you can't handle it and you're overwhelmed, that's okay to admit you're overwhelmed. When the stress of dealing with temptation and fighting it every single day is exhausting, it's okay to admit that you're exhausted. It's okay to admit that you're not enough, that you have weakness, that you have a thorn in the flesh. And it's even okay to pray to God to take it away. Paul did that three times. He pleaded, he begged God to take whatever he was suffering away from him. Paul is not sinning, and neither are you when you ask God to take the suffering out of your life. That's okay. Because what are you doing when you pray that prayer? You're admitting that your only source of power, of comfort, of stability, of sufficiency is God himself. Brothers and sisters, we are not enough to make it through life, but that's okay, because God is. His grace, grace is sufficient for us. 
the undeserved love that he promised to us on the cross of Jesus Christ. That is enough. My dog is not very smart. She does tons of things that are just annoying because if you would just think a little bit, you could figure it out. And retrievers are supposed to be brilliant. There was a study conducted a while ago to prove that domesticated animals are not as smart as animals in the wild. Or are they? In the study, domesticated animals, when given a task, became more frustrated, gave up quicker, and just didn't want to do it a lot more quickly than wild animals did. But is that dumb? Is that not more intelligent? Domesticated animals can admit that they are dependent on someone. My dog is waiting for me, right now probably, to go home and put food in the dish. She understands that she is not the top dog. She is not conceited in any way. Which one should we be more like? The self-sufficient, rugged, wild animal? Or the animal that gets what's really going on here? You are not independent. You depend on God for grace. You are not self-sufficient, but you're sufficient in Christ. Through Christ, you see the bigger picture, that it's God up in heaven who has been with you all along, who has brought you to this point in your life, and who's not going to abandon you now. You get it now through Jesus, that God's grace is sufficient. All you need. Amen.